Okay, that was a minute. Very, uh, very quick minute, so. My name is Taylor, uh, as Pastor Glenn mentioned, so uh, I've been attending the Rock Church for, for about six years with my wife here. Um, we really appreciate it. It's been uh, amazing to see it grow uh, the way it has when we first started coming here. That um, was not near as big. Uh, we were at one service, there weren't many, uh, weren't many younger folks here, um, and now it's just exploded with young people. So that's great. So um, awesome, awesome to be here. Um, I think... You know, for those who maybe don't know, but um, there's a lot of people that make this Sunday morning go. Um, as you know, there's a service in the morning, um, and, you know, there's people here at 8, 8.30, and then they're leaving at, you know, 12.30, 1 o'clock. And so, um, you know, they're here before, I'm sure, Aiden's even up in the morning, and they're, uh, they're back home much later. So um, I think just a round of applause for them, because, yeah, without them, we... Uh, yeah, we wouldn't have it. We wouldn't have what we have. So, yeah. So, thank you to all those folks who you know do the sound, the music, the kids ministry in the first service, um, the greeting, setting up the chairs, um, you know, printing the sheets off, all that stuff. So, there's a lot that goes into it, and a lot of them are not paid. So, they're doing it on a volunteer basis. So, if I asked you guys what the most popular, famous verse in the Bible is, what would you say? Yes. Okay. That was the uh, first answer in the first service too. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's probably the most recognizable verse. Um, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, that's John 3.16. It happens a lot with me. You know, I'll look at the clock. It's 3.16 um, at some point in the day. And so, uh, you know, if you watch sports, you'll see guys, you know, in football, they'll have John 3.16 on their eye block, or there's a guy you know, he kind of goes to the larger sporting events and he has a green sign that says John 3.16. So very recognizable um, and it's a great verse. My uh, first encounter with that verse wasn't from church or Bible. It was actually more of like a, almost a blasphemous use of it. So I used to watch when I was quite a bit younger, um, it's called WWF, World Wrestling Federation. Um, and so there is this one wrestler who's very popular. His name is Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, I see some guys nodding in the back. Yeah, you'd be about my age. Um, and he had, a, he had a shirt that said Austin 316. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's a weird number. Um, so I asked my neighbor, who's a few years older, I was like, what, is, what does 316 mean? He said, oh, it's, it's just a number. I was like, okay, well, don't really recall seeing that in school, but whatever. And it wasn't until later, obviously, that I figured out that, you know, 316 was actually uh, a Bible verse. So that being said, you know, my first encounter with it, it had nothing to do with the actual verse, but it is popular amongst Christians and non-Christians. And so... There's a number of reasons why this verse is probably the most recognizable, and I would say because it makes a broad sweep of the gospel in a very short sentence. It's God sending Jesus to save sinners like you and me if they believe what Jesus has done for them on their behalf. So let's just tease this verse out a little bit more and get to what I think is the linchpin of this verse. So God sends Jesus to save us from perishing. Well, why are we perishing? because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus defines sin as doing the wrong things, but also talks about sinning in the Bible as not doing the right things or doing things imperfectly. So sin is actually an archery term. And when a guy would shoot, and if you missed the bullseye, the guy that was viewing would yell sin because he missed the mark. So it's not only doing bad things, it's not doing the right things, and it's also doing the right things imperfectly. 
Now, who falls under those three categories? Everyone, yes, okay. And so, <clears throat> because of this, God's perfect justice will fall upon us. We are guilty of sin, and we stand guilty before a holy and perfect and just God, and he will rightly, in his justice, penalize us for our sins. So God made a way. He made a way by sending Jesus to save us from God's wrath. And to me, the whole verse lies on the word believing. Whoever believes in him. And so believing is what makes the gospel good news. If the word believing wasn't in the verse, well, one, the, the verse wouldn't make any grammatical sense, uh, for one. Um, but it also wouldn't be good news. Because how would we benefit from God's love if we had nothing to gain from it? If all the verse said was, God loved the world, he sent his son, we either go to heaven or hell, all of us should be saying, well, how do we get to heaven and how do we avoid hell? It just presents us with two options. And realistically, it presents us with just one, hell, because as we just said, we're all guilty. We all miss the mark. And so this verse is the best news that you will ever hear. But I also feel like this verse has been used or interpreted to cheapen the gospel. And I don't say that it's been used in a malicious intent um, or purposely. I just think that perhaps we have maybe understood what the Bible defines as believing, what true belief is. Just believe Jesus died and you'll go to heaven. I'm sure we've all heard that before. Well, that may be the initial step, and that's a great initial step. Make no mistake, when Jesus said to believe in me, he was not just referring to a one-time hand raised at camp or walking down an aisle, or a one-time prayer prayed. He's talking about your entire life. So how do we gain eternal life? By believing in Jesus. So to me, it seems crucially important that us as a church understand what the word believing means. When someone says, I believe you, they're saying that they trust what you're saying is true. They hear what you're saying, and they're putting faith in either what your words are, or they're putting faith in the person who is saying the words. Example, I believe you would never do that or your story makes sense i believe you it can also be used as a faith statement or a statement of hope i believe everything will work out or it's just agreeing with the facts i believe your math adds up so like many words in the english dialect believing has many nuances so what does the bible say about believing well just prior to john three sixteen, jesus is having this conversation with a priest named nicodemus and he's explaining to nicodemus who he is so he refers to this event that happens in the Old Testament. But this is what Jesus says. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if we go back to the reference Jesus was making, it's about this event that happened in the book of Numbers. Numbers 21. And I'll just read it for you guys. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on the pole. Then when anyone was bitten, bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The key word, as you can imagine, as I was emphasizing, is looked. When they looked. Jesus is equating looking with believing. As Hebrew 12 says, 
We must get rid of every weight and the sin that so clingly, so that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Keeping our eyes fixed, gazing upon Jesus, looking upon Jesus. This is point number one. To believe in Jesus means that we are to look and to see him as he truly is. Now, what happens when you look at something or someone? It means you're engaged. It means you're listening. It means you're paying attention. It means you're honoring someone. When I did shift a number of years ago, Brianna had this saying that said, one, two, eyes on you. One, two, three, eyes on me, right? Something like that. And it was to get the kids to look, to look at Brianna, right? Because what happens when you're in a conversation and you get someone who has shifty eyes? You know, you're talking with them and they're looking all around. Well, you get that they're not paying attention, right? There's no sense of intimacy. There's no sense of trust. When you look at someone in the eyes, that's what you're conveying. You're trusting. You're being intimate with them. Anyone ever heard the phrase, they couldn't even look me in the eyes? Yeah, when we use that, we're talking about someone who's acted shamefully or cowardly. They haven't been honorable towards us. So believing in Jesus is the conscious act of our soul to gaze upon the face of Christ. And it's important to know that it's a conscious, day-by-day, spirit-empowered effort to do so. Because I know in my personal life, if I don't specifically set aside time to focus on Jesus, I simply won't. I'll just drift. As Pastor Glenn mentioned, we have young kids, people who have, have, have had kids know how busy it can be. And so there are so many things in my day that grab at my attention. If I don't consciously make the effort to focus on Jesus, I won't. I simply won't. So I need to look to Jesus. Point number two, believing means receiving. John 1.12 says this, but to all who have received them, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Believing in Jesus is receiving the free gift of forgiveness that he has provided. It's free. It's not cheap, but it is free, which is amazing. You and I have done absolutely nothing, nothing to deserve the forgiveness we've been offered. And this is true for the Christian and the non-Christian as well. If you're here and, you know, you're not really sure where you stand, let me just say this is Jesus presenting an olive branch to you, inviting you in. As Revelation says, he stands at the door and knocks, and he waits for you to open it. And I would encourage you to think seriously about that, because the three Ps of the gospel are this. Jesus died to save us from the penalty of sin. He died and rose to save us from the power of sin. And he died and rose to save us from the presence of sin. One day, we will all be in Jesus' presence for those who believe and for those who love him, and it will be awesome. Ephesians 2.8 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. I'm not sure how much more clear it can get, but salvation from A to Z is the doing and the work of God, not you or I. And thank goodness for that, because if salvation depends on me or if it de- depends on you, we all have no hope. So believing means seeing, and it means receiving. Point number three, believing means submitting or following. Believing in Jesus means that you are fully submitted and happily, and that's a very key word, you happily pledge your allegiance to King Jesus and follow him. Matthew 10, 37 says this, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than you love me, you are not worthy 
of being mine. Let those words sink in a bit. And let me reiterate, this is what Jesus is saying. Not Taylor, not Glenn, not anyone else here. This is what Jesus is saying. If you do not love me more than the things that you hold most dearly in your life, you are not worthy of being mine. Tough words. I'd say even more tough since I've become a parent. Do I truly love Jesus more than I love my two sons? Do I gain the same joy from my sons as I do my king? I gotta be honest, I actually pray that I don't love my kids too much because I think it's just natural for parents to love their children, especially when they're little like mine are. I'm sure I'll love them when they're older, but right now it's very easy to love them and spend time with them. And this isn't, you know, a humble brag to tell you guys I'm a great dad. That's not it at all. But I have to pray I don't love my kids more than I love Jesus. Because I know that my children can easily become an idol in my heart. They become the center of my attention. They can become my greatest joy. They can become what every decision is wrapped around. They can become my identity. And here's the thing. My children will fail. My children will fail miserably at being my God. They will. They are my greatest earthly gift, along with my beautiful wife. I said I would mention that in the second one because it's being recorded live, and I mean it. Um, but those, my wife and my kids are my greatest earthly gift, but they're not my God. And if I don't consciously make the effort to put Jesus on that throne, something else will. But if I go back and I ask myself that question, honestly, do I love Jesus more than my wife and my kids? I struggle to answer that sometimes. Some days, sure. Other days, not so much. Do I spend more time with my wife and kids? Some days, yep. And some days I spend more time with Jesus. And so that has been an ongoing struggle for me to make sure that I put Jesus on that throne. Now, I got a question for you guys. Do you think it's possible to believe in Jesus but not follow him? My answer to that question is yes. And Mark 124, I'm gonna gonna share this with you. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, for some people who maybe aren't as familiar with the Bible, what I just quoted were words from a demon. The devil and demons believe in Jesus. They know who he is. In fact, they might have a better understanding of who Jesus truly is more than you or I. But of course, they're no follower of God. They're no Christian. They're not indwelt by the Spirit. They're no disciple of Jesus. So yes, my answer is it is possible to believe in who Jesus is, but it's not possible to follow him. So I think a better question, and I kind of set that up a bit, is do you think it's possible to have saving faith that believes in Jesus, but does not follow him? My answer to that would be biblically, no. As I mentioned in the verse previously, if we do not love Jesus more than anything else, he says that we're not worthy of being his. And he reiterates that point six chapters later in Matthew 16, verse 24, when he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. I can't minimize, I can't change or explain away what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about the seriousness and the sacrifice that he's calling true believers to be willing to endure for his name's sake. This is what Jesus is defining as true belief. Point number four, believing means treasuring. 
I've been reading through Hebrews the last little bit, even before Dallas asked me to preach here. And there's a number of verses that stand out to me, but one I just kept going back to and back to was in chapter 11, which is kind of the, the hall of faith there. And the author is going through all the great heroes of the past and highlighting their faith, their faith in God when they could not see an answer, their trust that God was good and that there was something so much greater awaiting for them at the end of the race. But verses 24 to 26 really stuck out to me. And I'm going to read it for you guys. By faith, when he grew up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. He regarded abuse suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for his eyes were fixed on the reward. Moses, because of his faith or because of his, his belief, chose to forego the pleasures of Egypt, chose to forego, as it says, sin's fleeting pleasure to suffer for Christ because he saw what awaited for him at the end. And he said, all this stuff, all this comfort, all this luxury, this life of ease, it's not worth it. I'd rather suffer and gain the prize at the end, then lose the prize and gain now. The treasures that awaited him in God were so much greater than all the treasures that Egypt could offer him. See, true belief is treasuring all that God is for us in Christ. And I think the word treasuring is a really great word to use in our vocabulary to see if our faith includes that word. In Matthew 13, Jesus, Jesus gives us another parable involving treasure. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that person found and hid. Then, because of joy, he went out and sold all that he had and bought the field because of his joy in that treasure. Jesus knows that he is the greatest treasure that there is. His goodness, his kindness, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his knowledge, his meekness, his power far outstrip any treasure that we will stumble upon here. Psalm 1611 says this, you make known to me the path of life in your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All the pleasures, all the treasures, all the joy that we experience in this life are but a shadow and a foretaste of what is to come. Finally, I'll end with this last point for believing. Believing means satisfying or enjoying. In John 6, Jesus gives this famous scripture. It says, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, we've all experienced hunger, and we've all experienced thirst before, and we all know how satisfying it is to get that cold cup of water on a hot day when we've been working outside. We've experienced that refreshment, that satisfaction, that sustaining result of having our hunger or our thirst quenched. And Jesus is saying, I am that for you. I am that for all of you. Your deepest longings, your greatest hopes, your biggest needs will all be satisfied in me. And I would say that they will only be satisfied in him. Only. But I want to insert here and just say this, this here. At one point in our life, it will feel like our deepest needs and our longings and our desires are not being filled by Jesus. There are many people in this church who have endured or are enduring incredible pain and sadness and heartbreak in their life. And it's tough to believe that Jesus truly will fulfill our deepest longings because what we're probably longing for most is that those times of pain are gone, to be healed of some sort of physical ailment, of some emotional heartbreak, or some tragedy that has occurred that has just wrapped us in despair and darkness for as long as we can know. But I want you to hear this. One day, either when we die or when Jesus returns, whichever comes first, 
we will see and experience with eyes no longer hindered by sin, with pain no longer at the footsteps of our door, the satisfaction of Jesus in our lives. And that is true for every Christian. In every minute of every day for all eternity, we will only experience the awesomeness of Jesus in our life and we will enjoy and be satisfied with him every day, minute by minute, without end, for all eternity. And it will be so worth it. I pray this psalm almost every morning. It's Psalm 9014, and it says this, Satisfy each morning with your unfailing love, so we may sing for joy to the end of our days. Do we really believe that being satisfied in God will bring us the greatest amount of joy in this life and the life to come? He's calling us to believe that. He's calling us to experience that. Now, before I wrap this up, I just want to share one more thing. Maybe some of you are listening and you're, you know, you're kind of rebuffing what I'm saying, saying, you know, Taylor, you're, maybe you're being too legalistic or, you know, you're, it's too much or it's, you know, it's too whatever. Now, I just say, fine, just read the Bible for yourself and see what you come up with. When I read it, I simply cannot get a different picture from the biblical writers other than the fact that true belief in Jesus is one of total and complete surrender to him. And it's not a surrender out of duty or obligation, but out of joy because you see him as your true treasure. You realize how sinful you are and how incredible it is that God still saves sinners like you and sinners like me. And if you don't see that, if you struggle to see that, like I do, pray. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit that he would change that in your heart. Trust that he will. If you're lukewarm, be gracious that God has convicted you of that. Go to him. Ask him for forgiveness. He will grant it. Forgiveness abounds in his hands. And then walk in that freedom, knowing you're forgiven and that you can truly enjoy Jesus as you should or you ought to. So before I finish up, one last thing. I just want to end the service taking a minute here to paint some broad brushstrokes of the supremacy of Christ. I took this from John Piper, not all of it, but some of it, and I just thought, you know, I couldn't not share this. And so here's some quick hitters. It's going to be a lot, but I'm going to try to paint the picture of why Jesus is the greatest treasure there is. The supremacy of his patience to endure sinners and scoffers like you and me. The supremacy of his grace to not only forgive, but to seat us at the table with him and for him to serve us. The supremacy of his meekness that comforts the brokenhearted and cherishes the most vulnerable and powerless in our society. The supremacy of his wrath, wrath to punish every injustice ever committed and the supremacy of his love to cover those injustices on the cross. The supremacy of his deity, though he is God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. The supremacy of his authority to command the waves to be still, and they are. To command the blind to see, and they do. The deaf to hear, and the lame to walk. He speaks, and it is done. No demon puts up a fight against him, but does as they are ordered. He speaks, and the spiritually dead are raised to life, to new life, changing the heart from a cold and callous one to one that treasures and enjoys him. His word goes forth, and it doesn't return void. And finally, the supremacy of his glory is we will one day marvel, marvel at his holiness and perfection, and people from every tribe of every nation will bow down and worship the king of kings and he will rule forever and ever on earth with us that is the jesus that he's inviting us to follow that is the jesus that we are invited to believe in 
So I'll call Amy up here, and I'll just pray for us, and we'll go on. Jesus, um, yeah, sometimes it's hard to believe that you're good based upon what we're going through. And so I just pray for the people that are struggling with that, um, God, that they'd reach out to you and that we would experience the joy that you have, the treasure that you are. I pray for us that are in the church that believe in you, that our belief would be stronger, that we would know it's more than just an intellectual ascent to knowing who you are, but it's a change of the heart to enjoy you, to follow you, to obey you, to trust you, to treasure you, to walk with you, to surrender to you, to submit to you, and to love you. And I pray for those who maybe don't know Jesus, that they would reach out to him and that they would see that he is the greatest good. And I speak from experience knowing that. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.